Thank you. I mean, does anybody really need to ask me about biscuits? I mean, they're just amazing. Am I right? Uh, well, I am Chase. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a joy to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, I had more to say by way of intro, but I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. Um, maybe I'll say this, this brief thing. Um, we, we did spend five years at UC Berkeley uh, in the Bay Area, and oftentimes people have mixed opinions about what goes on in Berkeley. And I'll just say God is powerfully at work on the West Coast and in the Bay Area in particular. So that's certainly a place to keep in your prayers. Um, let me, uh, let me uh, read our passage, and then I'm going to pray for us, and, and we'll dive in. We're going to be reading from um, John chapter 7 and 8. Uh, it's the last verse of chapter 7 and then uh, the first 11 verses of chapter 8. Uh, th- this is God's word that he's given to us um, because he loves us. They went <clears throat> each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, um, we thank you for this day. We thank you Uh, for a day of Sabbath rest and worship and play and love and service. We thank you that this is a day that no matter who we are or what we've done, what we did last night, what we will do this night or tomorrow night, this day is a reminder that your promises are true and steadfast and nothing can get in the way of that. So we pray that no matter where we're at this morning, um, those of us who perhaps feel strong in our belief, those of us whose faith feels feeble, or those of us who even don't know why we're here. We pray that you will meet us, King Jesus, just as you have met this woman. And we know that you will. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Um, Well, I have a question for you this morning. I'll set this up here. Have you ever wondered why we're so affected by the opinions of other people? You ever wondered why, like, what what other people say about you matters so much and can kind of determine the way that your day or your week or your years actually go? 
Um, when Mariah Carey was in her late 20s, she had more number one hits than anyone in music except for Elvis and the Beatles. Um, and I figured, uh, since you're all huge fans of Mariah Carey, that I would use her as my opening illustration. Um, I know my context. I know my demographic, right? Um, but seriously, right, she had a ton of number one hits. And a reporter once asked her, uh, he said, is there anything that's left for you to accomplish? Anything that's left for you to accomplish? And she sat there quietly for a moment and kind of pondered in her head. And then she replied, happiness. Happiness is what's left for me to accomplish. And the reporter, who obviously was a bit surprised, he asked her, how could this be true? With, with all of your success, with all of this applause, with so much money, how can you not be happy? And she looked at the reporter and she said that she could hear a thousand praises and then just one criticism. And the one criticism would override the thousand praises and wreck her emotionally. We are so affected by the opinions of other people. And we live our lives in ways and we say to ourselves, it doesn't matter what other people think. It only matters what you say about yourself. But we are inconsistent. None of us actually live that way. I know I certainly don't. Perhaps you remember uh, back in the day, the old Saturday Night Live skit with uh, the self-help guru, Stuart Smalley. And at the beginning of each of the skits he would do, he would look at himself in the mirror and he would say, I'm going to do a terrific show today. I'm gonna help people because I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. And for as much as we think and want to think that we're good enough and we're smart enough and we're beautiful enough or whatever it is enough, we are dependent upon external voices. We depend upon the voices of our spouses, of our friends, our parents, our pastors, our coworkers and colleagues, our bosses. And the question is, why are we so emotionally dependent? Why are we so emotionally dependent? We live life in the courtroom of public opinion and we're always trying to prove ourselves, always making our case. We're always desperate for a verdict, desperate for someone to tell us that we are okay. Christianity actually gives us two reasons why we live this way. The first is because deep down, all of us know that we are not okay. And so we spend so much energy endlessly searching for some way to be okay. And the second reason we live this way is because we were actually made for the approval of another. We were made for someone outside of ourselves, external to us, to look at us in loving approval, and then furthermore, for us to bask in that approval. Well, what if there was a single voice of approval a single voice of love and praise that could override a thousand voices of criticism. 
Isn't that a voice that we all long for? Don't you long to have that kind of voice speak words of affirmation and love and approval over your life? Well, that's the voice of Jesus over this woman in John 8. And there are three things that she hears from him and that we must hear too if we want his voice. And those three things are, you are guilty, you are not condemned, and you are free. You are guilty, you are not condemned, and you are free. You know, guilt is, um, uh, it's something that we kind of have a strange relationship with uh, in the modern world. It's kind of in vogue right now to assign guilt uh, to other people. But in terms of personal guilt, that I am actually guilty of something, that is increasingly passe. Or at least that's what we claim. Like, I'm not actually responsible for anything. There's a lot of people out there that I would love to cancel, but none of it is my fault. The problems are always out there. Um, There's this fascinating article by a professor named Wilford McClay that's called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And what he says is that while religion has been in retreat, guilt is as powerfully present as ever. And he says that we have this inextinguishable need to feel morally justified. Okay, so here's an example of how this works and how it gets worked out in our day-to-day lives. We love to demonize people that are not in our tribe. Okay, so if you watch CNN or MSNBC, you demonize people who watch Fox News. And if you watch Fox News, you love to demonize people that watch CNN and MSNBC. If you live in Alabama, where I'm from, you love to demonize people who live in Berkeley. And if you live in Berkeley, you love to demonize people who live in Alabama. And I've even picked up on this in my time in Nashville, right? There's this battle between private schools in Nashville, which is just weird to me. But if you went to Montgomery Bell Academy, like MBA, as they call it, if you went to MBA, you demonize people who went to Innsworth. And if you went to Innsworth, you demonize people who went to MBA. We create these binary categories of who is good and who is bad in order to feel morally justified about ourselves. And McClay's point is that we are trying to deal with our guilt. If we can prove that someone else is wrong, that makes us feel right. To prove that someone else is a sinner makes us feel like a saint. And that is exactly what's happening in our text. Jesus is in the middle of a sermon And some religious all-stars interrupt him by bringing in this woman who is in the darkest night of her life, who's been found doing something that she probably never imagined she would do. They bring in this adulterous woman and twice the text says that they caught her in adultery. And that is important because that means it actually happened. This is not a story of innocence. There is real guilt here. And they are exposing this woman in front of everyone. And so they march down, they march her down in front of Jesus 
because they are trying to actually set a trap for Jesus. And it is a brilliant trap. If Jesus shows her mercy, they'll accuse him of ignoring Mosaic law. But if he stones her, if he says stone her, they'll call him out for denying the grace that he supposedly offers to everybody. So do you follow this trap? They're saying, hey, if, if he shows her mercy, they're gonna say, you can't be the Messiah because the Messiah actually came to fulfill the law and you're ignoring the law. But if he says, stone her, then they're gonna say, some Messiah you are. Yeah, go to this guy and tell him all the mistakes that you made. He's gonna throw a rock in your face. Doesn't sound like a good Messiah to me. So what is Jesus gonna choose? What is he gonna do? Is it gonna be justice or mercy? How will Jesus respond? Well, I actually love these kind of quirky passages in scripture. The first thing that Jesus does is he just like bends down on the ground and he starts like doodling in the dirt. I have no idea why he's doing that. I'm sure you're asking like, what is he writing? Why is he doing that? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. I actually think though that it invites us for a bit of like creativity and interpretation. And I would bet that it at least means that Jesus is least moved by people that try to police behavior. He would rather doodle in the dirt than deal with your self-righteousness because he has more hurting people to tend to. So the first thing he does is just doodle in the dirt, but then he responds and he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is doing two things in this statement. One is he's actually affirming the guilt of the woman. He never says that she's innocent. He never says that she didn't break the law. But what's even more astonishing is that secondly, Jesus affirms the guilt of the religious leaders because they hear what Jesus says and then they all start walking away. And why is that? Well, one reason why is because the very law that they are invoking, they are guilty of breaking. The Old Testament law actually demanded that both parties caught in adultery were punishable, but they only have the woman, a problem that still exists now. We'll get to that in a minute. So they are guilty of partiality. This is a total double standard and God shows no favoritism, but these religious elites do, and they did. And not only are they guilty of partiality, they are guilty of pride because they think that their sins are somehow more respectable than her sexual sin and brokenness that their sins are somehow less offensive to God. And what Jesus is doing right here is he is making it clear to them and to us that this is not the case. And we actually need to own the ways that we still do this today in the church. And it is sexual sin in particular that we are so inconsistent with. I'm gonna be a bit vague here but if you struggle with, with certain kinds of sexual sin, 
Uh, you may be admonished. You might get like slapped on the wrist, um, but you're still given every opportunity to struggle within the community of faith, within the church. But if you struggle with other kinds of sexual sin, and note here, I'm saying struggle. This is, I'm not saying give license to and enable, right? If you struggle with other kinds of sexual sin, the church has historically not provided you the opportunity to wrestle within the safety of God's people. And that is wrong. All of us need to bring all of our sin into the community of faith and struggle on the road to sanctification because that is the way of the cross. And as a church, it is our responsibility to make sure these doors are open to people who struggle with certain things and look certain ways, whatever it may be. And the reason why is because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It is absolutely level. No one is higher than the other. And the difference between this immoral outsider and these religious insiders is that she has no illusions about herself. She can hear Jesus say, you are guilty, but they can't. The religious leaders can't. And so the first question for us this morning is are we like these religious leaders? Are we blind to our own guilt? Or are we like this young woman and have a strong sense of where we've actually fallen short in life and ways that we need to grow? Some of you might be thinking, um, I wish Will was preaching or Richard was preaching. Where is this Mariah Carey uplifting voice that I was promised at the beginning? Uh, I'm not sure about this new Vandy guy. Well, just hold on, stay with me because the news gets better because there's a second thing that Jesus says to her, right? One by one, uh, uh, these folks, they drop their stones and they walk away. And I want you to notice that the text says the oldest ones, they left first. And the reality is, is that the older that you are, the more time you've had to realize what a mess you are. Um, I'm 35. Some of you probably look at me and go, you're not old. I'm beginning to feel the oldness of body aches and stuff. I've got three little boys. They take a lot. But nonetheless, like I remember, I vividly remember being a little boy. And I want you to hear this from me, even as a pastor who's ordained and, you know, I've got a blazer on and blah, blah, blah. Like I remember being a little boy and telling myself, I will never do this. I will never do that thing. I'll never do this. And I have done some of the very things that I swore I would never do at 35. Some of the very things that I swore I would never do. One commentator puts it this way. He says, youth can be cocky. When you are 20, you think you know everything. When you are 30, you look at your 20-year-old self and think, what an idiot. I'm so much wiser now. When you're 40, you look at your 30-year-old self and think, I didn't have a clue, but now I know. And when you're 50, you look back at your 40-year-old self and think, I didn't know anything. And then finally, you start to realize I'm just forever an idiot. 
There's some truth to that. I don't want to like, you know, we need to, we need to have some like self-positivity there. Like Jesus loves us, so we're not always idiots. But, you know, we are a lot of the times. But anyways, like one by one, these folks are walking away, walking away, throwing down their stones, walking away until all that's left, the only two people that are there are this woman caught in that act and Jesus, the creator of the world, the sinless one, the spotless lamb with this woman right there. And you really have no idea what he's gonna say. And if you are conditioned and born in the deep South where Christianity is everywhere, you think he might say something like this. Why'd you do it? Why'd you go and do something like that? But instead he says, has no one condemned you? And she says, no. And then he says, well, neither do I. You are not condemned. The moment after he affirms her guilt, Jesus takes her side. The moment after he affirms her guilt, he takes her side. Do you see how different this is from every other message that we get in the world? Modern culture says, hey, you do you. You're not guilty. No one can tell you how to live. But we all know this, life doesn't work that way. That's why the Me Too movement exists, because we can't do whatever we wanna do. But on the other hand, religious culture says, you are guilty and you are condemned. You're gonna go to hell because of this. So you better try harder. You better keep these five pillars or align yourself with the eightfold path or improve your life or else God or karma or something is gonna get you. But then Jesus says something totally different. He doesn't say guilty and condemned. He doesn't say not guilty and not condemned. He says, you are guilty, but you are not condemned. You are guilty, but you are not condemned. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel. Guilty, but not condemned sinful, but deeply loved. And you have to have both or you lose Christianity. Now, how can that be true? How can Jesus uphold at the same time justice and mercy? How can he uphold judgment and grace. And that's a hard one for us because we love a God who loves, but we struggle with a God who judges. That's why so many of us, we kind of like the New Testament, but we don't really get the Old Testament. There's some weird stuff in there and God seems kind of mean there. So how do we make sense of this? How can both of these be true? The key to understanding this passage is actually a lot like real estate. You all know what they say about real estate. You know, it's location, location, location. Uh, location is everything in real estate. And location is everything in John 8. Verse two tells us that this scene is taking place in the temple courts. And that's significant because the temple was the courtroom of God. 
Okay, and in the Old Testament, that's where the high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement, and he would take and make an animal sacrifice on behalf of the people and on behalf of their sins. And then he would pray for mercy and he would intercede and mediate on their behalf and on behalf of the people. And then later in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest and that he too offered a sacrifice, but it wasn't an animal. It was Jesus himself. Jesus himself was sacrificed. There's only one person in this scene who can throw a stone. You'll notice Jesus never said that you can't throw a stone. He said, let him without sin throw the first stone. And what Jesus was and is, is Jesus is the sinless one. He's the judge. He's the sinless judge, the one who had every right to pick up a stone and throw it. But instead, what John is telling us, instead, the judge became judged. The sinless one became sin for you and for me. On the cross, on the cross, justice and mercy, judgment and grace, law and love, they collide like a stone on the head of Jesus. Not on you, not on me, not on this woman, but on Jesus. And so Jesus can say to us, you are not condemned. You are not condemned because in the courtroom of God, Jesus is not begging God for mercy. He's not saying, hey, they screwed up again. Could you just please take it easy on them? That's not what he's saying. Jesus is pleading justice. And you know why? Because justice has been served on him and not on us. And so God cannot make you pay for what Jesus has already paid in full. You are not condemned. You are approved. You are accepted. You are loved. You are protected. You are shielded. You are nurtured back to health and in good standing, no matter who you are or what you have done. That's the verdict that your heart longs for. That's the voice of praise that can override a million voices of criticism. That is the voice of praise that can override a million failures and a million shortcomings. And you know what happens when you experience that kind of love and acceptance? 
you have the capacity to hear the final thing that Jesus says to this woman. You are free. Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. You are free. I want you to notice the order here. This is incredibly important. Jesus does not say, hey, leave your life of sin and then I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. You see, the gospel is good news because grace and acceptance always comes before obedience. You don't change so that you can get God's grace and acceptance. No matter how disciplined and good you are, and there's a lot of disciplined people in here because there's a lot of military folks in here, a lot more disciplined than I am. You don't change so that you can get his grace and acceptance. He gives you grace and acceptance so that you can change. And if you understand that, then you will begin to see God's guidance and God's commands not as a restriction, not as limiting you, but as liberation, that you are free to become the beautiful image bearer that God has created you to be. And the reality is, is that we have a warped view of freedom. Most of us think that freedom means that we can just live however we want, but that's not freedom at all. That just means that you're enslaved to your desires and appetites. Real freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Real freedom is the presence of the life-giving guidance that God himself has determined for us in his infinite love and wisdom for us. You're free. So what now? How does a forgiveness like this free us to live? I wanna close with just a couple practical points on that. How does, how does a forgiveness like this free you and free me to live in God's world? Well, the first thing that a forgiveness like this does is it frees you to live a life of humility. Knowing that we're guilty Knowing that we're guilty frees us from self-righteousness and judgmentalism. It frees you from feeling like you have to snub your nose at people or look down on other people. I want this to really sink in with you. Look how gentle Jesus is with this woman. And this is worth pointing out in a Christian subculture. This is real sin. And that should be an encouragement that you can take real struggles to Jesus. He did not just die for us because we struggle to maintain a consistent quiet time, okay? He actually never tells you to have a quiet time. You can, but it's okay if you don't have a regular quiet time. This woman is struggling with real stuff. There's real mess in her life. And this should be an encouragement because what this means is that if you are hurting and you are bruised and you are beaten from your own decisions or other people's decisions, you can go to Jesus. He is a gentle Savior, look how gentle and humble he is. And he frees us to embody that same kind of humility as we love our hurting neighbors. A forgiveness like this also frees us to live a life of trust. When Jesus asks us to turn 
from our sin, it's going to require a great act of trust on our part. And you want to know why? The honest reason why is because sin often feels better, at least in the immediate moment. And sometimes sin even seems a little bit more logical. But Jesus is inviting us to trust him. He's inviting us to trust him with our money, to trust him with our suffering, to trust him with our sexuality, to trust him with our singleness, to trust him with our marriages, to trust him with our career, to trust him with our children. You know that God actually loves your children more than you do. He is calling us to trust him with our lives. And it is a steep ask to trust Jesus. But what John is telling us is who has loved us like this? Who has loved us like Jesus? And isn't that a love that you long to place your trust in? Finally, a forgiveness like this frees us to live a life of patience. And this is a word that I need to hear, especially. Do you think that this woman ever sinned again? Do you, do you think that she was like perfect after this? There's no way. There's no way. And Jesus knew that she wouldn't be perfect. And Jesus knows that we aren't gonna be perfect either. But Jesus deals gently with her and that means that Jesus deals gently with us. And he is patient with her and that means he is patient with us. The Christian life is a long journey of a lot of stumbling and a lot of scraped knees and even some lost limbs. But Jesus is the one who stands between the stones. And Jesus is the one who moves toward you and toward me in the depths of our adultery when we feel least like a saint and he picks us up and he carries us on. And a forgiveness like this only comes from a savior like that. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we indeed have a savior that we can't even fathom. One who meets us in our darkest nights and not only meets us there, but makes us more than conquerors in those weeds, in those bad decisions, in our infidelity, in our unfaithfulness. You work mightily to bring beauty out of ruin. And so Jesus, no matter who we are and no matter what we're struggling with, we ask you to do that now. We ask you to do that in our lives. Even this day, would you give us daily bread to see us through? We thank you now um, for your word and we thank you for your promise to turn us in to the beautiful image bearers that you promised us to be. In Christ's name, amen.